If you have ever had a chance to look into a microscope and see all the activity in a tiny drop of seawater, then maybe you have been in awe. Where you stood before the vast Atlantic Ocean to see a magnificent sunrise over the horizon. Then, maybe again, you have been in awe. Just want to thank Dr. Ben Witherington III for joining us today for our In Awe by Bruce conversation. He's the Amos Professor of New Testament for Doctoral Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. He's written over 50 books, including The Jesus Quest, lectured in churches, colleges, and seminars all around the world, interviewed by all the major TV channels, as well as channels like Discovery and History. And so I'd just like to welcome welcome Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm good. Good to hear from you, Bruce. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And, you know, we'll jump right right into it. As I was thinking about you and as a professor and somebody who's taught a lot of people over all these years that... Uh, as you look out, what do you see as the awe that works in your life or the people that you're teaching's life that really drives them forward for, for the Lord and to do things for the Lord? Well, I think it, it depends on what you mean by awe. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about um, a sense of the majesty of God and just the wonder of God's work, both creation and redemption— um, if that's what we're talking about, and the rest yes. to that, which is praising God and reverence for God and worship of God and all of that, there are a lot of things that can produce that. I mean, just taking a walk in the woods in a beautiful spring or fall day is awe and wonder at God as a creator, or hearing a good sermon about redemption that really floats your boat, that can do it too. For me, as a musician, more often than not, the thing that really most moves me to the point of wanting to worship is usually music, not not just the spoken word. So what is it about music that particularly draws you to be in wonderment of God? Music reaches the affective side of who a person is, whereas mm-hmm. words reach the sort of analytical and logical side of where we are. And frankly, God really is a mystery. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not somebody who can be logically, I mean, who can logically analyze the Trinity, mm-hmm. right? And so the question really is, what is it that opens you up and really gets you to a place where you can be wide open to God reaching you? And, um, you know, for me, more often than not, it's, it's music it opens up my soul and, and gets me going. I'm glad you're talking about that because, you know, I know there's some feeling out there that if you get into that realm, some people have that view that, that there's no mystical side, so to put it. I don't know if that's the right word, but to the Christian life. And yet, and yet that's exactly what there is. There's we've so much that we you can say about God, but then there's also a lot that we just can't put our fingers on because his ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher. And one of the things he gave us, like you said, is emotions. And I'm like you, I'm very much touched by music. Probably then like you, I I, I play guitar, I write songs. Uh, How do you bring that about in your life? Just, is it mainly at church or is it listening to it? Or do you actually create some yourself? 
Well, yes to all of the above. I'm a very right-brained person. I mean, that's where all this writing comes from. As well. uh-huh. But the right brain is also the seat of language and uh, emotion and, and all of that sort of stuff. So for me, wanting to be a whole-brained rather than a lame-brained person, <laughs> you know, I try to concentrate on all sides of this equation. I mean, there's a, in the Methodist and Wesleyan tradition, music plays a huge role. Yes. And it, it always has since Charles Wesley and Isaac Watts and those guys. And so I think what most brings people to a point of worship is something that reaches the whole person, mm-hmm. not just a part of the person. I mean, you, we've all attended the first Church of the Frigidaire before. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yes. It may be intellectually stimulating, but it's not awe-inspiring or, you know, uh, totally uh, satisfying as an act of worship. It's interesting uh, how things have changed. Uh, In my tradition, in the Wesleyan tradition, Mm -hmm. which spawned the Salvation Army, which spawned a lot of the Pentecostal traditions and the famous uh, revival in the beginning of the 20th century, which spawned the Nazarene Church and various other denominations as well, Uh, When when you talk about revival, revival has to do with the reawakening of the soul, okay? Not just the filling of the mind with lots of good, neat ideas, but the reawakening of the soul. So not only is it necessary in your initial encounter with God to have an experience of God as well as an understanding of God, Mm -hmm. but, but... as an ongoing growth in Christ, you need to have that as well. I mean, think for a minute about the fruit of the Spirit. What's the Spirit working in us? Mm-hmm. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Well, guess what? Most of that's an affective thing. Yes. And so from my own tradition and, and from my work as a biblical scholar, To me, the worship that actually gets the job done is the one that reaches the whole person, including their experiential and affective side. Well, well summed up. And, you know, Ben, as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about the classes you teach. Do you see that as something that you're able to affect in your classes or since maybe they're more along the intellectual side that that part? Does it come from other places at school, or is that tradition being kept alive enough? It does happen in the classroom. Partly, I mean, good education uh, involves enthusiasm. Hmm. And if the professor is in love with God and enthusiastic about sharing God's word, that's contagious. Yes. That that wakes up the neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. not all sitting out there thinking, oh, this is very droll and boring and dull, but I'd better take some notes. Yeah. See, here's the thing. Where we are in our culture now, people are visual learners more than they are auditory learners. Right. And so you'd better have something that catches their attention, visually speaking, not just something that they hear and process as 
interesting. And yes. so my job as a professor is to tease their mind into active thought. Well, how am I going to do that? Well, you got to get them excited about what we're doing. And, you know, that's to me is an important part of the education. Now, the other part of that is you have to share some of your own experience. Mm -hmm. You want not just information, you want transformation, right? Information right. without transformation availeth not. Whether we're talking about a lecture or a sermon, it does absolutely happen in the classroom. And it happens when the students themselves engage as well, right? When they right. get excited and they ask sometimes a not very well-formed question and sometimes a well-informed question. See, the difference in, between the classroom and an act of worship is basically worship doesn't tend to be a Q&A session. Mm -hmm. It tends to be not monolithic, but uh, it's prefab, right? Right. Where there's a spontaneity to a classroom and a spontaneity to asking questions and having a chance to participate at the level to which you're ready to participate. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes an interactive experience not just a data download or I'm listening to him and he's informing me. A good classroom experience involves active students as well as an uh, actual and active professor as well. And, you know, I can take a moment just to say that Ben was actually a professor I had when he was at uh, Ashland Theological Seminary. And, and that's probably one of the, the things that I saw in you, Ben, was the passion and the fact that it was, it was, it was like we could talk about anything, beat anything around, ask any kind of question, and that made us motivated to learn. So, you know, uh, thank you for that, but you're right. I think you're right on. And I think increasingly, it, we have to understand that whether we're dealing with millennials or Generation Y or, mm -hmm. now we're in a post-modern and to some degree a post-Christian situation now. And the interesting thing about that situation is it's so experientially oriented and so affective in nature that the traditions that have the easiest ability to reach in post-millennials are, in fact, in fact, the more affective traditions, not the more cognitive traditions. Okay, and yeah. If you want to know why the Pentecostal church is growing like uh, kudzu in the South, it's because that tradition has always led with the affective side of worship and Christian experience. Hmm. And, and you know, in the two-thirds world, the, by far the fastest growing Christian traditions are Pentecostal in South America, in Africa, uh, even to some degree in India, uh, in the Far East. I mean, you name it. Hmm. Why is that true in the two-thirds world? Well, because they never ever got to the place of uh, being like late Western rationalism or post-enlightenment West. And so for them, that's, emotion has always been a big part of who they were. I had a good illustration of this when I was uh, doing some teaching in Bulawayo in Zimbabwe. Yeah. And uh, there's the Indibilis and the, uh, and the Shonas are the two major tribes in that part of Zimbabwe mm -hmm. who have various members of them have become Christians. And what was really interesting to me was that the Indibilis, who were evangelized by the Methodists, were allowed to keep their own native garb, create native 
dance that was Christ-centered and, and Christian in character and create their own hymns. Whereas the, uh, the, the brethren in Christ who evangelized the other tribe insisted on them wearing Western clothes, singing Western hymns like Amazing Grace, and mm. so on. Now, what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture is that we shouldn't have been Westernizing people who didn't need to be Westernized to be Christian. Um, the amazing thing about Christianity is it can become indigenized in any culture. Mm -hmm. It's the only religion I know of that can be indigenized in any culture without bringing its culture with it. I mean, that's fascinating in and of itself. And that, and, and why is that? It's because, uh, among other things, we offer them a Christ in whom there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, no male and female. We're all one in Christ. And that being so, tribalism is not part of Christianity, or at least it shouldn't be. Hmm. You can be yourself and be a Christian, but you'll have to be your best self. Uh-huh. So... You know, to me, I saw two whole different philosophies of mission in Bulawayo, and one of them was working a whole lot better than the other one, because people could st still be who they were and reflect the best aspects of their own culture and still honor and worship Christ and mm. that sense of awe and wonder about the gospel. Wow, powerful example. That's so true. Uh, you know, anytime we push our own selves on other people we're, we're taken away really from what Christ did for us is give us that freedom of expression to express him in our different ways. Exactly. Ben, you know, as you look at the people that you have coming in that you're teaching, are you finding that, that they are more understanding, more open to the wonderment of God behind all the things that are amazing in this world or no, not? It varies. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't think you can say one way or another, or even that there's a dominant trend. What I have noticed is, and then this is interesting, the ones that are going into Christian ministry and even doing PhDs who come out of a uh, linguistic or artistic or uh, musical background are much more in tune to the experiential side of worship who have come from a very rationalistic tradition. Yeah. So for them, it just seems natural. This is just the way it ought to be. You know, I've given my whole heart to the Lord, and, uh, you know, that's right at the heart of the matter. On the other hand, for, for those who have come from highly, very analytical, scientific backgrounds, and we have a lot of them, they're really good at analyzing things. They often write very orderly term papers or chapters in a dissertation. Uh -huh. But when you ask them to encapsulate their experience of Christ, yeah, well, they have a hard time talking about it. Uh. No, they're shy about that, which is, you know, I'm not surprised. And here's the thing that's most interesting. If you look at the grad chapters of InterVarsity uh -huh. or, uh, you know, some of the other things like Christian Union, a lot of the people that are in there are from the hard sciences. Mm -hmm. When I get hold of them, <laughs> have never written an essay in their life or a dissertation chapter. They're like, help! 
me, help me. You know, <laughs> right? Uh, um, they're good at analyzing, and they're not good at eloquence or rhetoric or a lot of other things. And they're very shy about sharing their experiences in various ways. There's been a lot to overcome with those kind of students. And that's what I was going to say, Ben. If I'm if I was listening to this and I'm thinking, gosh, I'm one of those people that comes from that side. Yep. What can I do? Well, I think what you try to do is realize that what God wants is for you to be a whole-brained person mm. and take a holistic approach to worship. If there's a side of who you are that is uh, you find uncomfortable or you know not natural to you, then that's your growing area. That's what you need to explore. Mm. And, and you need to put yourself in the context of people who are not just like you. Our, our natural tendency is to hang out with people who are like us. Right. Uh, right. Well, that's really not healthy <laughs> in the long run, you know, because you're just reaffirming what's already true about you. Yes. I mean, I was fortunate enough to, to marry a scientist. Mm -hmm. The opposite. I mean, she's very analytical. She's very orderly. She's very precise. She makes lists every day, et cetera, et cetera. This is so not me. <laughs> so the nice thing is that in my marriage, we're not duplicates. We're complements of one another. And we make a good couple mm. uh, in isolation we're not all that we could be. And so, you know, for example, I mean, I'll write a novel for InterVarsity, like A Week in the Life of Corinth. Mm -hmm. And then she edits it. And she goes, this is not logical. This <laughs> should have happened before that event. And, you know, you could really right. express this a lot better. And so she's, she's my best critic as well. Oh, that's great. When we see the, the pluses and minuses we each have and we're realistic, I, you know, about ourselves, I think that's humility and we know we need others. Any last things you have to say about, you know, being wonderment or, or things that have in your life have ever struck you as really just like overpowering you with God's presence in a different way or anything like that? Well, I think there's a lot to what Paul says and Peter says about suffering. Suffering, whether from disease, decay, or all kinds of other personal traumas, tragedies, those yeah. sorts of things, absolutely opens up your life to becoming more dependent on God. Mm. If you've got a half a brain, it drives you right into the arms of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yes. You realize you're mortal. I mean, I've just dealt with prostate cancer and uh, prostatectomy and, you know, the aftermath of all of that. And uh, so I've been reminded again about my mortality. Yes. And you know, if you're a, a profoundly Christian person, if that doesn't drive you to prayer, then there's something really wrong. Right, right. <laughs> something seriously <laughs> wrong, even if you're not a big time prayer. So... One of my favorite passages from Paul is when he said, three times I asked the Lord to take away this stake in my flesh. Mm. He said, no, mm -hmm. I'm not doing that. My right. power is made perfect in your weakness. Grace is sufficient for you. Yes. Well, 
God uses our weakness and our suffering and our diseases and all of those sorts of things, not just as a reality check to remind us we're all mortal, but as a way of drawing us closer to himself. I mean, we have to remember that this life is not all there is. What God is offering is everlasting life. Amen. And this life cannot be infinitely extended. I mean, eventually we're going to run out of gas. <laughs> and it's okay. That's all right. The question is whether you are making the main thing the main thing. Too often we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, you know. <laughs> I mean, we really do. We, we too often try to prop up this life at all cost. True. I mean... The basic philosophy of secular medicine and hospitals today is this life is all there is. You've you know, got to prop it up as long as humanly possible. Well, that, that should never be a Christian philosophy about life because, frankly, this life is not all there is. Right, yes. And, and if you've already got the gift of everlasting life, then chill. <laughs> you don't have to take extraordinary means and ruin your family's financial situation and drain everybody's bank account dry only to live another three months or something. You know, that's absurd. So I think you have to have a totally different, if you really are in love with God and you believe in everlasting life, then you don't have to keep propping up this increasingly fragile vessel infinitely. No, what you need to do is serve the Lord and let things be what they are. Um, it's okay. And so, you know, I think when you have that clear sense of your mortality and your finitude, God can even use that to draw you closer to him and give you more of a sense of awe and wonder about how much he really loves you and has a really infinite plan for your life. And as we can see from the, the Bible passages, it's obvious that that suffering built Paul's reverence for God, didn't detract from it. Exactly. It produced perseverance in his life. Mm -hmm. And he really did persevere because he was beaten up umpteen times. He was shipwrecked various times. He was, you know, in chains umpteen times. Finally ended up beheaded, probably. Okay, this is not the resume we get <laughs> from the health and wealth preaching of some preachers, you know? Right, it's, yes, yes. A discouraging word, and the sky is not cloudy all day. Wrong. This is not life. Equally bad is the preacher who says, God gave you that cancer. You should praise God for that cancer. That is what I call BS, by which I mean bad stuff, right? Very bad, very bad. It's bad theology. It's simply not true. Much of what we experience in this life that's negative is a result of the fall. It's our fault. It's not God's fault. We need to own up to that and stop blaming God for our problems. Um, I was in Minneapolis, and a famous preacher, radio preacher and writer, came on the airways. And I was there right after the big bridge collapse. You may remember where people were killed and cars were pancaked. I do. You know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago now. Anyway, this guy gets on the radio and says, well, yes, we should grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn. But at the end of the day, 
This was God's plan for the life of us that got squashed, and we need to get on with it and get over it, right? Wow. I went, wow. Yeah, wow. Okay. Thank you very much. That hurts my heart. Well, <laughs> yes. I, I was angry in seven languages about that. <laughs> I, I was like, put me on the radio and let me deal with this nonsense. That's not the God of the Bible whom we are told is love. That is absolutely not the God of the Bible. You know, I've spent my career trying to present a very different view of God, a God who is a lover, a God who wants the best for everyone, a God who gives us a modicum of freedom of choice to respond or not. I don't believe that love can be manipulated, coerced, or preordained. And precisely what God wants is not automaton. Hmm. What he wants us to is to freely give us his love and us to freely respond in love and worship. That's what he wants. I'm with you. He wants a personal relationship with us, not a situation where he tells us everything that's going to happen and then he arranges it. We have an opportunity to freely participate in the will of God through prayer and service to the Lord. Hmm. If that doesn't give you a sense of awe and wonder that God is actually using you to work out his will on earth, well, then I don't know many things that could do. Yes. It's like it says in Ephesians, he's laid out things for us to do, and he's looking for us to choose to take those on because he wants to bless us through them. Exactly. And and more importantly than that, he wants us to be a blessing to other people. Mm. You know, we yes. live in the most narcissistic culture, I think, in human history. We invented the selfie because, of course, <laughs> self is at the center of the universe, of every individual's universe. Well... The truth of the matter is that worship draws us out of ourself and draws yes. away from a self-centered to a God-centered existence. And there can be no awe and wonder at God unless God is the center of your universe. It just doesn't happen. I mean, if you want to know why some people go to a worship service that's fabulous and walk away unimpressed and uninterested, it's because... The God in their little world is themselves. And they didn't hear a message that furthered their self-centered world. They don't want that. That's the sad truth about our culture. It's profoundly self-centered and narcissistic. Mm. And Ben, this is why I'm so glad you talked with us today and so glad that you're out there because that's the message all of us need to remind ourselves of and so many need to hear. Amen and, and amen. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, anything else you want to say or before we go? or I will simply say, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and activate your whole self to give you a sense of awe and wonder. Wow. Thank you very much, Ben. You're welcome.